Hi, thanks for tuning in and welcome to the latest episode of Unspun, a podcast by Population. This week, we talked to Ben Pham, founder and owner of Year 901, an Austin-based jewelry brand. Don't go away. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome to Unspun, a podcast by Population, unraveling what's holding us back from regeneration and liberation in the fashion and home industries. I'm Danielle Arzaga. I'm Lauren Hill. And I'm Catherine Tedrow. We're the founders of Population, a change agency blending the creative and strategic to embed an integrated approach to sustainability into brand, marketing, and business model strategy. We convene the much needed conversations about systems change by centering stakeholders across the entire value chain, all the way from supply to demand, to co-create solutions to the biggest challenges facing our industry. Today, we're speaking to Ben Pham, the founder of Year 901, an Austin-based jewelry brand that uses traditional metalsmithing techniques and intentional sourcing to create jewelry with a fun and lighthearted twist. We're excited to talk to Ben about following your intuition to build a values-aligned business. Hi, Ben. We're so excited to have you on Unspun. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here with you guys. We'll jump in with our first question. Most of our connections are in the sustainability apparel and home textiles network. So we're excited to branch out and speak with someone in the jewelry space. We saw you transition from the corporate world to pursuing your creative passion. What did this shift in your life mean to you? A few words kind of sprang into my mind. The biggest problem I had when I was in the corporate environment, which is, you know, what I went to school for, was that I I kind of always questioned my purpose. I kind of always questioned if I felt fulfilled. So when I started making jewelry, it, it really came from a place of overwhelm. I worked in marketing after college, and I was the only one in the marketing department for a software company. So it was very fast paced. It was high stress. And I started to make jewelry on the weekends just as a way to unwind and kind of center myself, which is something I've always done uh, growing up. I've always kind of made things and my mom taught me how to sew and things like that. So I started making jewelry from that job. And as I transitioned out of that job after four years into a role in, I was a director of business development for a IT consulting company which was even more fast-paced and high stress. And I just kind of felt like, am I just going to be stressed out forever? Am I always going to have a deadline I'm working towards? So that kind of encouraged me and pushed me to start making more jewelry at that time. So, you know, starting my own business, I actually felt a purpose that I get to make the things I want to make and put out into the world, the things that I wanted to see, which, you know, made me feel fulfilled. I love that. We read that you took a trip to Vietnam and Thailand as kind of part of your transition process as you were moving toward spending more time uh, building your 901. We were curious to know how that trip influenced your business and also perhaps the products that you make. My parents are from Vietnam and we left January 1st. So, you know, I was going to transition out of my job and 
before January 1st. And after I come back was just, you're done kind of thing. So I went on the trip. It was seven weeks. I spent 11 days with my parents in their hometown of Hue, Vietnam, which is central Vietnam. And then the rest of the seven weeks, I was completely by myself. I challenged myself to, in a lot of ways, say goodbye to that girl that worked in the corporate world because, you know, that was my dream job. It was what I went to school for. And I thought that I would never leave a job like that. I thought I'm good, burn the resume, I'm done. Um, And, you know, it, it was hard on me to kind of say goodbye or see you later to that person that just dedicated their lives to business development. And to go from that into a very creative space was polar opposite. Polar opposite. I I was two different people in in these roles. So it was, you know, kind of settling that part of my past life, but also connecting with myself. Uh, My parents are from from Vietnam. They have an incredible story on how they made it to America, but I had never been. I felt very disconnected to that side of me and to my roots and where they came from and their struggles in Vietnam. So it also allowed me to kind of learn a new part of myself when seeing them in their home country. It was beautiful. And I think it was kind of what I needed to transition fully into my own work and kind of get myself ready to, uh, for what was to come. I think that's really beautiful and inspiring story. And it's full of a lot of self-reflection and listening to yourself and your gut and moving, taking action with these feelings that you were, that you had. And I think a lot of people could learn. I mean, I know that that resonates with me and something I think about a lot is like having the courage to go out and do something on my own. I guess I just don't really know what that thing is yet, but I am wondering, I think our listeners would really like to know what some of the biggest challenges you face as a small business owner and maybe Maybe that's kind of related to this kind of self-discovery that you that you went through and and finally going out on your own. Yeah. You know, one question I get asked a lot that kind of pertains with the these challenges is how, how did you get to a point where you knew you wanted to take the leap? And I it's an important question because sometimes it feels glamorized where you're like you have this like awakening or something and you know, for me, it was a long process. It was a lot of tears and kind of questioning if I needed to feel fulfilled, if that makes sense. You know, it's like, well, there are so many people that just do a great job working for a company and it's, it's, you know, you know what to expect from it. Like, why do I want to kind of trouble myself into this world of the unknown? And, you know, every path is really different. And, I always tell people that I I spent just time making things before I even knew I wanted to go in that direction. And the challenges I've encountered the last five years of doing this full-time is that it can be, you know, there are, there are perks to working for someone else in a way that they're, you're able to kind of clock out at 
635, whatever time that is for you. And you, you have this different life. And for me, everything bled into each other in the first two years in a very unhealthy way. It was the only thing that was important to me because it was my livelihood and there was zero balance. I was working all hours of the day and night and doing shows. And I felt like I couldn't, it had to be my entire identity for a while until I got to a point where, you know, I said, well, it's making me so anxious. It's making me so fearful. And I'm going to have to reel it back a little bit and kind of go back to basics on why you are doing what you want to do. Because, you know, those, the why is going to be, it's going to have to be very big because the obstacles are very, could be very extreme. But, you know, I come from very humble beginnings. I spent, you know, the first two years of my business, I started in my bedroom like I didn't even have an, a spare bedroom for like metal work, which is crazy. No one, you know, it's a very messy and dusty yeah. work, but that's what I needed to do. So in the, in the beginning, I, I told myself there are no excuses. You know, there's no magical tools I need to get. There's no magical workspace. Like if I can do this here and now with what I've got, I'll be okay. And so that's what I did. I, I had, you know, just the basics of jewelry making and uh, manufacturing. And I just started there and I started to slowly branch out. And, you know, then I was able to get like a new torch or things like that. But that's something I always tell people as well is just kind of start with what you've got with just where you're at. I love that. That gave me chills when you said there's no, you know, magical thing that's going to solve the problems and there's no excuses. And we kind of wondered if you're still a one woman supply chain and what, what growth is actually going to look like for you as a company, as an enterprise, and maybe over the years, kind of what you're visioning, what your dreams are. Yeah. Yeah. So technically I am still a one woman shop here. Which is incredible. Which I, yes, I love it. It's great, but I do. Oh, I I meant like an incredible feat that you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot to do. I am a one woman shop, but I do ask for help when I need it. So that, that comes during busy times. Um, It comes when I, there are things that I'm not great at. One is social media. It's just, you know. We would beg to differ. We think your Instagram is amazing. Oh, thank you so much. And a reflection too on your website. It's incredible to see you take those skills that you already had from marketing. I mean, you, you have such a unique perspective and aesthetic and it's fresh. And like, I, I think your personality as a brand is really amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, that's good to hear because I don't also I don't always feel like that's my strong suit. I think um, you know, just like all of us in the social media age, we're kind of questioning if that's always the healthiest option too. So I like to have fun with it. I want to just 
make things as lighthearted and as fun as possible. And when it gets to the point where it's not always fun, I like to ask for help in, in that way. Especially when, you know, making jewelry from scratch is a very long process. So asking help in ways where it's either, you know, video content or, you know, scheduling things out. I have hired contractors in that way. And also, or even when I'm working on a big batch of new items, I have very small, a small family team that can help me cast jewelry, which is the process of turning wax into metal. They are out there to help me as well. So I have done it all by myself and it's, it's a very hard thing to do. And as, as far as scaling, um, that's a difficult thing to do. And I think about it often because you know, there's a lot of companies that make products. Mm-hmm. So it's just, as we're talking about sustainability, it just is a lot of waste produced. And when you're, even as a a single person myself, there's so much waste that I contribute to the world at, as far as maybe I need to get stones or metals. Everything comes with metal. Everything comes individually packaged in like a Ziploc. So there might be like Ziplocs inside of Ziplocs in a bigger Ziploc and then in a box, you know? So there's a lot of waste involved in that. So I'm very mindful of how much I create at one time and kind of like what the purpose of it all is for. So I want to scale my business in a way where it will always feel small. I really don't have any desire to to just crank things out just for the sake of it being holiday season or Valentine's Day or Mother's Day. It's funny when we talk about sustainability, there are so many things that we can talk about. I feel like what is not often a part of the sustainability conversation is what a business model looks like that's really geared toward sustainability. And we talk a lot about are the materials that we're using to produce our products sustainable? Um, is our supply chain sustainable? And not that they're, you know, people aren't aware of sustainable business models, but I feel like oftentimes our sustainability conversations are focused on something very specific. And so it's cool to hear you talk about this like very deep integration of sustainability into the values of your business and even questioning what does your model look like and how can that from a a foundation be sustainable as opposed to kind of addressing sustainability too far downstream when you're say creating more waste because you've scaled so much that you have excess inventory or whatever it may be. So I'm curious to know a little bit more about your sustainability paradigm for your brand and kind of for yourself. Like what is that, how does sustainability inform how, how else does it inform how you approach your business? Right. For me, as an individual that sees recycling and upcycling and sustainability as an important factor in my personal life, it does sometimes come into conflict with my business life, right? Because my business life is making things for people to buy, which in a lot of ways kind of contradicts me as an individual. So, you know, that is something that I'm always coming to terms with, because I think as a maker or in in any sort of business that has consumer goods, acknowledging it is, is an important thing to do because I can't really, 
you know, I can talk about sustainability, but I also have to acknowledge that I am a business that makes goods, more goods to put into the world that is, you know, a world that has excessive goods. In in other ways, for example, right now we're more familiar with the damage that mining for diamonds is causing the world and people in general, but that really does trickle down to other parts of jewelry. So for myself, I try to challenge where I get my supplies from. Where is it coming from? Is it locally mined or, you know, it does become very blurry because there's there's a certain point where it's like, oh, we know it comes from this region of Asia, but we're not exactly sure where. So in in my efforts to kind of offset that, there just like in um in apparel, there's you know dead stock fabric. There's a lot of there's a lot of materials that are not used today. And I there are times where I base a collection off of some you know dead stock materials that I have received from maybe it was an old jeweler or a lot of broken jewelry is out in the world that is pretty much set to waste. So whether it's melting down old broken, outdated, damaged pieces, or taking materials out of old jewelry or using materials from, it could be a jeweler that's no longer in business. So kind of what you're saying, like as if you're thrifting, you're using things that are out already out there for your own purpose. So that means I'm not buying, I'm not, you know, contributing to the mining of new, new items. Ben, I just want to follow up really quickly on that because we talk a lot about transparency and traceability in the fashion or garment supply chain. And so I'm, you know, you mentioned briefly that some materials, especially gemstones, or I guess that's the right term for it, gemstones, I think, (laughs) you know, basically the region that it comes from, but what is the tendency or what is the, the potential for you to actually know, like trace that back to the actual mine or the, I don't know, I guess, I don't know who that would be, the trader, the miner, I doubt it's that, but I'm just curious if that's something that is relatively prevalent in the jewelry making world or, or if, if not. In my experience, and I'm just one jeweler out of the many, I have seen that it really depends on the rarity of the stone. Like diamonds are so sought after and they're popular and expensive and all these things. So you can trace those things back, but as in maybe stones, like say it's a slab of Jasper that comes from a huge rock that for my, from my experience has been hard to trace back because you know, this whole rock could have been even, you know, locally or in the States as in Arizona, for example, that huge rock has been cut up so many times and has been through the supply chain so many times that when I kind of see it in a local gem shop or a rock shop, that it's kind of blurry. But these rocks that, you know, these are rocks that they're not as rare as diamonds, they're not mined in a, you know, in a questionable, unethical way as say diamonds are 
So there is a lot of information. I'm not an expert in in it. When when things become a little bit too blurry, I, I kind of question like, oh, can I find this in a different way to kind of offset any any footprints I'm leaving behind? There are Amazons of the world that just crank out jade rollers just to crank them out. And, you know, it is okay to buy that from someone you feel comfortable supporting and not, you know, the mass manufacturers of the world. And I, I don't want to say that it it isn't a problem because I'm sure in these countries it it is. It could be a problem. Jade, for example, is is a beautiful stone that I'm starting to incorporate more into my work. And it, it I feel deeply connected to it being an Asian person. And so to see Jade kind of just thrown everywhere, it could be a problem for these countries that has had it as, as a sacred stone. So yeah, I would just kind of research where, where it is and where it's coming from and, you know, just do your best as we all are. I think this tension between kind of like small batch, slow making versus mass consumption is a great segue into some some questions we had for you around the small maker community. We were curious to know what the the US-based small maker community represents for you as a local business. Yeah. One, they represent co-workers, which can be such a beautiful, nice thing uh, when you're working by yourself and to kind to to have like-minded people around you that also enjoy life at a slower pace is is nice because it is a hard thing to do when you're making any sort of jewelry by hand it's just hours and hours of making that doesn't include the hours of learning so there's just when you're kind of giving with the information you have and someone is giving, it just is so helpful because I make in just in my way and it's hard to see, well, if you just do it this way, it actually saves you about two hours, you know, which is so significant. And I don't, it's just my, I've made so many friends from doing shows in town or just finding friends from classes or anything like that it, it's it's a beautiful thing to be able to partake in and there are times where these people that you meet say local vendors you know markets and pop-ups are a beast you know they're long hours there's a lot going on you're prepping for the show you're at the show for however many hours each day but there's so much of preparation that goes into it and when you have booth neighbors that are awesome, it's so much fun because you're you can relate to them in a different in a different way. You bond over these experiences. It's great because you trade with people, which is such a fun zero dollar thing to do with goods. Like my my home is just full of other makers and seeing their work and drinking out of their mugs is inspiring to say the least and it kind of encourages me to get things going you know we we trade knowledge we teach each other each other's crafts it's an important thing to do because 
when you're working, you kind of only see uh, business, other businesses at a distance. So that's when the comparing comes along. There's a lot of companies in general and also in the jewelry space that take, you know, funding, VC funding, and they, they're meant to look like a small company, but they're massive, you know, so you, it is hard to not feel like a small dog all, all the time, an underdog. And it can be discouraging at times, but when you see other people and other skills, it kind of encourages you to kind of just keep doing what you're doing. Don't pay attention to these big guys. They're always going to be huge companies. That's just the way, you know, capitalism works. So it's building a community around you to kind of get you through all the other crap that goes on. I'm curious then the kind of, we talked about the big corporation and uh, mass production versus the decentralization of all of these small makers and the communities that form. There's a lot of corporations that are starting to kind of bring the small maker into their bigger, you know, business model, like Madewell's Hometown Heroes and West Elm's community features. I'm curious, is there a tension there in your business model getting embedded into their business model or has it been a great way for you to grow? That's a great question. And it's a valid question because it, it seems kind of like counterintuitive in some ways to partner up. And I, you know, I get asked that sometimes. And what I try to do in my business is what feels right to me, right? There are times where you get an opportunity that's like, ah, my gut is just kind of leaning towards no. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because of this company. And it's always important to know, you know, what is important to a company before you align with them. And Madewell, for example, I don't always agree with how fast their fashion, you know, they're also fast fashion and how, you know, their seasons and in style, out of style, and just a continuous number of sales that they run with, you know, I can, I can be a person that doesn't necessarily agree with that business model, but also be a person that really adores what that company has created. I've worked with Madewell in different variations outside of the home hometown heroes collective. Uh, it could be like I've done store pop-ups with them. I've done like store openings. And I can say without a doubt that everyone I've ever come into contact with in that organization has been just so lovely. And there's been so many times where I have worked with some person and they kind of refer my work to other people, you know, um, and that's kind of how like the hometowns collective came into play was just someone just mentioning my work. So I, I think as, as a business, we, it, it's so hard to always be in line with such a massive beast, but I think when you are a massive beast and you still have just so many great people in your organization that there's something to be said for that as well. And I've had just a, a great experience with everyone top down issues that have come into play. Just all of it has been very pleasant for me and I'm appreciative of it as well. Awesome. So there's one question that we like to ask our guests 
And what is that? What is the question that you want to be asking to the industry in order to create real change? Yes. I think a question that I would like to ask the industry is, is there a better way? Just simply as that, when I'm thinking of getting something, is there a better way to get it? Is there a better way to make this item that I want to put out into the world? You know, even if you have to buy new things, we all do. We all do. And for a business, there's a lot of outside of jewelry, there's a lot of other things we have to buy still too. We're talking packaging and all the countless things. Is there a better way? And I think if you are, you feel good about your decisions, that's just kind of all we can really do, right? Because we're all just people trying to do the best we can. And we also have to call upon these massive corporations that really do zero to none. And, you know, I think as a small business owner, there is a lot of pressure from our community to be all the correct things at once. What I mean by that is, you know, I, as a small business, you're, you're held to high standards. You want, you, you should be, you know, sustainable and you should have best practices and you should be affordable and you should be, you should have a voice in every cause. And there's, it's very, it could be very overwhelming. Right. And so to kind of ask yourself if there is a better way to do things, but also not be so hard on yourself that it stops you from doing and making because you, you don't have to do it right all right now there's, you know, a process. And there are times where I'm like, you know what, there was a, a, there was a point where I didn't want to do business cards at all because I was like, oh, that's so much paper waste. And, and it's hard for a small business, right? Because you want to hand something off to the consumer and you want them to remember. So sometimes it's just doing things in a way where my business card also on the back doubles as an earring card, you know? So just making little adjustments like that can kind of build your confidence in what you contribute to the world. I hope that answers that question. Yes, no, it does. Absolutely. And being more intentional. And I think it's just that thinking about what impact we're actually having, what impact our choices and decisions are having on the greater society, the world around us and the people that we work with. So lastly, we like to ask everyone, who is your unspun hero? So who is someone that you want to shout out, someone that you think is doing amazing work, but is not necessarily maybe getting the recognition that they that they should? Yes. I wanted to shout out, her name is Janelle Fu. She's a glassworks artist. She does beautiful work out of Pasadena. Maybe you guys are familiar with her work. It's it's incredible. And outside of that, she has also created an auction campaign called Create to Stop Hate. So it is an auction of work from Asian American artists. And we auction our belong or our any item of choice. And all the proceeds fund and help stop Asian hate, stop AAPI hate. And it has just been a very, very cool organization to witness. It's, it's, 
they've raised over $46,000. Wow. Um, yeah. And I think that's an important cause. As we all know, there's been just a huge rise in harassment and physical abuse and just chaos in the Asian communities. And um, a lot of a lot of incidents go unreported and has skyrocketed during COVID. So to see kind of this group of artists, all Asians, all sharing this platform to raise uh, raise funds for important organizations to spread awareness is great. So that's what I'd like to shout out. You can find them at createtostophate.com. Their auctions run on Instagram. So yeah, it's a cool thing. There are so many amazing, amazing items up for sale. That's great. That's really exciting. I'm going to check it out right now <laughs> or after we finish here. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for being here with us. It's really been an honor. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Thank you guys so much. It was a really uh, fun time talking to all of you and finally seeing all your beautiful faces. So thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another episode of Unspun and for joining the conversation to create a new vision for the future of fashion and home. Huge thanks to this week's guest, Ben Pham, for sharing her perspective on the industry. You can follow her on Instagram at year901. To join the conversation, follow us on Instagram at wearepopulation or visit our website, wearepopulation.com. Unspun is produced by Population, co-developed with Corey Cambridge, and mixed and edited by Compost Media Flow. Our theme music is by Richie Quake and cover art by Ryan Welch Designs. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.